First Class Fatherhood. That is where Alec Lace comes in with his popular podcast. And one of the most interesting was on a podcast. Alec Lace interviews high-profile fathers from actors to NFL players with a vision to change the narrative of fatherhood and family life. Welcome, everybody, to episode 671 of First Class Fatherhood, a family-made media podcast, and I have got a phenomenal guest for you guys today. The one and only Dr. Drew joins me on the podcast. Dr. Drew Pinsky is a legendary media personality. He's an internist and an addiction medicine specialist. He had a very long run as the host of Loveline from 1984 to 2016. Loveline was extremely popular when I was a teenager in the 90s. Uh, you heard Adam Carolla on Loveline for many years as well. You, you guys heard Adam Carolla right here on the podcast last year. Dr. Drew has had a number of successful TV shows, including Celebrity Rehab with Dr. Drew. That was on VH1. Uh, he did Sex Rehab, Dr. Drew on Call. He's really a media sensation. He's been all over the TV for many, many years. But first and foremost, he is a doctor and a father as well. He is the host currently of the Dr. Drew After Dark podcast. Go check him out over at drdrew.com for all things Dr. Drew related. See what he's up to. They got a bobblehead over there right now. That thing is moving like hotcakes. He's got it on the table during this interview. I'm absolutely honored to have Dr. Drew with me on the podcast today. Dr. Drew will be here with me in just a few minutes, so please stick around for the interview. And today's interview with Dr. Drew was recorded on video and is available for you guys to watch on my YouTube channel. So if you'd like to watch today's conversation, uh, please subscribe to First Class Fatherhood on YouTube. Link is in the description of today's podcast episode. All right, just a few more episodes to hit you guys with this year as we get ready to turn the page to 2023. Next week, I got another media dad joining me here on the podcast. This time, Dave Rubin will be here. Dave Rubin is a gay dad who has gone through the surrogacy process. He received a lot of criticism, some uh, from his own fan base. He's going to discuss all of that with us and so much more. So don't miss out on that one coming next week. Friday, I'm going to hit you guys with another best of 2022 episode, a little throwback. Last week, I republished my interview with Steve Harvey, which was my number one most downloaded episode of 2022. Such an honor to have him on the podcast. So make sure you follow me on Instagram at Alec underscore Lace for everything going on, all the upcoming guest announcements. Don't forget about the MyPillow deal. Get over to MyPillow.com. Use the promo code FATHERHOOD. You're going to save up to 66% on your order. There's still time right now to get it all in and get it shipped to you in time. Uh, so don't miss out. Get it done now while you still have a chance. MyPillow.com, promo code FATHERHOOD. All right, if you guys have the opportunity, please let me spread the word about the podcast every father in your neighborhood or in your contact list. Let them know about the show that's here celebrating fatherhood and family life. You know it. Father's Day is every day right here on the podcast. And here comes my interview straight up with Dr. Drew on First Class Fatherhood. Joining me now, First Class Father, Dr. Drew Pinsky. Welcome to First Class Fatherhood. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. All right. Well, let's start like this. How many kids do you have? How old are they? So we have triplets. That's three. And uh, one of the most, uh, the, the two standard questions we get is, when did you know that we were going to put it on a t-shirt? We, you know, the first, you know, it was a fertility campaign. We knew immediately, number one. And then number two, what was the, net, the, the latest one? Uh, oh, yeah. Do you have other kids? That to, Do you have other kids? It's like, no, if you lived for, through triplets, you aren't going to have other kids. <laughs> it's quite a traumatic experience. 
Yeah, I, I've interviewed a few dads that have done multiples and it's uh, uh, it takes it to I have four kids myself, but not all in one shot, you know, so yeah. it's we had our first two 15 months apart and Even that close. was challenging enough as it is. I, can't, yeah. I can only imagine having them all together. So, yeah, it's very stressful, very yeah. stressful. So it, it, it looks that way to, to be if you could, Dr. Drew, maybe for a few people who don't know, if you could just take a second to hit my listeners with a little bit about your background and what you do. So sort of a long story. It's all sort of weird serendipity. I, uh, I was an internist. I was actually going to be a cardiologist and I ended up moonlighting in a psychiatric hospital and I got very good at the care of psychiatric patients for the medical care primarily. And uh, a lot of the medical stuff was down in the drug unit. So I ended up spending a lot of time on the drug and alcohol and got very good at that and learned about that and ended up taking over that program for 20 years. Uh, alongside of that, so I was doing critical care medicine, inpatient medicine, outpatient medicine, medical psychiatric and then addiction. So I had sort of four careers going simultaneously. Uh, alongside of that, I started doing a radio show back in 1983 at the, just an opportunity, this weird thing, this, this station that was a block away from my apartment just became very popular overnight. And people I knew knew people over there and they sort of wanted me to come in and help them make a community service show essentially. And at the time, one Anthony Fauci was pushing very hard on us younger physicians to go out and educate about this syndrome that we just stopped calling grids and just were starting to call AIDS. And uh, young people, I was shocked when I went up there the first time, young people had never heard of it. It was just unbelievable to me. And uh, so I thought, wow, I'll just keep doing this and did it for 10 years, one night a week. I thought I was doing community service. It actually wasn't until uh, 10 years later uh, my wife got pregnant with triplets two weeks after or before. I can't remember the exact time, time, but right around the time they decided to put it on five nights a week. And, uh, and I was like, well, how, I thought to myself, how am I going to do this? I was getting up at five in the morning and coming home at 10 o'clock at night. I did that for years. And, uh, and my wife then went, uh, Hey, if you're, uh, out of the house five nights a week, that's no longer community service. That is a job. You're, they're going to pay you for this. But I really wasn't getting paid before that. And uh, so it was her behest that I went in there hat in hand and asked if I could, you know, be paid to go in, be on the radio two hours a night. Super crazy. Uh, and then these, you know, I've just I, these television producers showed up in the mid 90s. And I thought, well, what's that? How do you do a TV show? I have no idea. Uh, but I have no time for it. I, you, I could give you Friday afternoon and Saturday afternoon. And so Friday and Saturday afternoon is where they did Love Line, the TV show. Uh, and that led to other stuff and everything's just been this big exploration. I mean, I, there's no blueprint for what I do. Even just this studio I'm in right now is in my house. I, I'm in massive denial that I operate a digital network out of my house and my wife runs it. It's like odd to me that we're doing that, but here we are. Uh, and just, you know, as other things come up, I just explore them, try to find ways to get media to do good. That's really sort of been my, my task in media. And it really wasn't until about 2010, 2011 that I actually admitted to myself I was doing television. I really was very resistant. I was like, just leave me alone to practice medicine. Until about 2010, I thought, okay, you've got a show on HLN. You have a daytime show on CW. You have a nighttime show on radio. You have got celebrity rehab is coming back. Maybe you can admit to yourself that it's okay to focus on this for a while. So that's how that all happened. Yeah, you've had you've had a tremendously successful career. I always respect the work that you do with the rehab. I'm a, I'm a recovering alcoholic and addict myself. Congratulations. I've always respected the work that you've done uh, on that front. So then if you could take me back then uh, to the beginning of the fatherhood journey here, Dr. Drew, how old were you when you became a dad? And how did that change your perspective on life? 
uh, we, we, Susan and I, my wife, Susan and I have, uh, uh, we, much the way there is, uh, used to be BC and AD or whatever they call it, common era and BC before the common era, AC and BC, we have before children and after children, BC and AC, like, like there's no, there's a continental divide in our life. Uh, and that, that was it. And we actually got pregnant. We, we were on a fertility campaign. We actually got pregnant once, um, but that had to be terminated because it was up sort of near the tubes and it was going to rupture the uterus and there's all these sort of technical problems. And that made us as a result of that dependent on fertility treatment. So then we went full, full into it again, triplets. And um, <laughs> we, we literally went from being this sort of fun couple, you know, newly married, doing our thing to our life is now parenting. That, that, that is, we are, that we are, I literally, we, we went, uh, had an interesting experience where they kept telling us to reduce to twins because not because they couldn't get us three healthy, healthy babies, but because the impact of triplets is so profound on the health of the children, on the, the marriage survival, on the health of the parents, the safety issues. It just, it just, the data is not good on triplet outcomes. And our obstetrician was like, look, I'll get you three babies, but I want you to know that here's the data. It, don't do this. It's very stressful. And we went into a hotel for a weekend and tried to think through, you know, how to make this decision. And we just finally realized that we can't, we couldn't terminate any part. We, you know, terminating, you know, reducing from three to two risks the whole pregnancy. And how do you select? It's just, no, we too much. And so I literally had this image in my head of playing poker and taking all my chips and pushing them all in. It's like, okay, we're just all in on parenting. That's it. That's how we're going to get through this. We're going to spend whatever it takes. We're going to do whatever it takes. You and I all in. And that worked for us. Uh, and we, because, you know, we, we were willing to get help and uh, horsepower, you know, we needed manpower. That's the main thing with triplets. You got to have more hands. And we just spent on that. We brought people in and we got help and we, did what we had to do and it worked out for us. It then ended up being, you know, our really our glorious, you know, the arc of our life together. And, and interestingly, you know, it, it, it triplets intensifies everything. And so because we had this project together, you start to realize the importance of marriage and family and history and, you know, what it is to commit to these things. That, and that and that after that commitment to being all in on our family uh, at the, you know, as they get to be adulthood and stuff, the sh two of us share this extraordinary thing, the, the, the arc of our history, which was, you know, com, you know, like battle mates, you know what I mean? You get bonded by trauma, we we're trauma bonded. Uh, we did it and we have the satisfaction of doing it, doing a good job and, and then creation of a family and these other lives. And, and th this is what I, I really am disturbed about in terms of the conversation about marriage these days. P people don't understand the commitment to forming a family. No one ever talks about that, right? That the fundamental purpose of marriage is this unit that is made as stable as possible to build a family structure and unit around it that God willing has multiple generational kinds of um, uh, iterations. So, so the others, you know, three generations down the line can continue to benefit from a similar kind of 
structure and stability and environment for, for childcare. The fact that most marriages don't work and marriage is tough and then people don't have blah, blah, blah. screw that. Screw that. Stop that. Stop it. You're, you're really, you're, you're really, yes, it's tough. You commit to it. And yes, yes, I get it. Uh, yes. It's we got to be better at that, but to uh, unravel the fundamental unit and the value in that unit that people, you know, Susan was always very vocal about that. Like she was, I, she kind of wanted to be the head of a family, like, the, like be the matriarch sort of, I mean, not in any kind of formal sense, but that was important to her. And I, now I see, you know, now that we've shared this thing and built this thing, I really see what it is that she was talking about. Yeah, very well said, Dr. Drew. And uh, I agree. And I think, uh, you know, the family unit is so important. I, I like what you said there, too, how there's a BC and AC before kids and after kids. And part of that relationship with your wife going through having kids is you grow as a human being. You grow, you change, you develop. Yeah. And you can't you can't get that kind of experience anywhere else on Earth except by going through it. And I think so many people miss out on that or misjudge what family life really is all about. And I know it's you know, as I mentioned to you before we started, I, I worked for the railroad. I've been doing that for 23 years. And whenever I would be offered a double at the job and stay an extra shift, eight hours, I would call my wife and say, hey, are you ready to do a double today? Yeah. Because she's got to do a double just like I do. Yeah. It means that she's got to do dinner by herself, bedtime by herself. Yeah. So you, you learn to have that. You're both in it together. And I was working. She stayed home to raise the kids. And that gets looked down upon so much today where they say a stay at home mom as if, oh, that's all that you do. And, and that role has become, uh, you know, so much less than what it really is. And uh, I would love well, to see us it, get back to that. It's the most stressful job on earth. And and to be fair, I, I was, uh, I don't want to say selfish, but I was um, insensitive to some of the stuff you're talking about there. Cause I, I would work crazy hours. Like I said, get five in the morning, 10 at night. And I just expected my spouse to, to deal with that. Right. Cause she knew she married a doctor and that's what I did. And that's the thing. And, um, that was unfair. I feel bad about that because I don't know how she put up with it, but, but she's an independent person. So it kind of worked for us. Um, in terms of her also not being home, it's unthinkable. I, I don't know how we would have done it. So somebody's got to, somebody's got to stick around. It's just, it's, you don't have to do it full. I mean, I don't know. Somebody's got to be around. That's just the way it is. I, well, I, that's what that's what leads me into this, Doctor Drew. I mean, I talk on this show all the time about the fatherless crisis that we have going on because we have so many kids growing up without a father in the home or a father figure. And in my opinion, it's the number one social issue we got going on in our country, and it's leading to devastating results. The stats are all over the place, and they're overwhelming. And I think that if we could get more dads back in their kids' lives, I think 90% of the problems we're seeing, maybe bring some God back into focus as well here. And those two things together, I think we would see the majority of the problems we're having right now disappear pretty quickly. What's your take? Well, I've noticed two things, that a lot of the frustration with society, you know, when people, oh, society makes me this way and blah, blah, blah. Um, when you sit down with those people and close the door, they always have extreme anger and hostility towards the father. <laughs> it's, always, it's just always there. And so somehow father represents society at large. The psychoanalysts sort of hypothesized that some time ago. I don't know. It seems like there's a pattern there, number one. Uh, number two, the other pattern is, uh, gentlemen, uh, particularly uh, the impact on your daughter of you abandoning or misbehaving or mistreating your wife. It, it's spectacular. Well done, gentlemen. Uh, they will then go out and find a guy just like you uh, who will do that to them. Really want that? Think about it. Whether it's abandonment or drinking or domestic abuse or aggression, whatever it is, 
the, that's that becomes the the more traumatic, the more intense the love map. You know, that we we have these sort of maps in our head built on the objects of our parent, and uh, it's hard to hard to undo that. It's hard to undo that. So uh, think about that, guys. And if you you know, the I hear these men all the time going, "Oh no, you know, I I had to you know, I had to move to Florida." Uh, but you know, I sent her a, I call her on her birthday and Christmas and send her a present. Are you effing kidding me? Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Give me a break. Stop it. And human relations, you know, human development is a very complicated process. It takes a long time to create a human being and it requires other satellite central nervous systems and autonomic nervous system bodies in space. You have to have other central nervous systems, other bodies attending attuning present in the in the in the physical presence of that child for hundreds of thousands of hours to create a stable central nervous system that is able to go out in the world and, and function and, and and part of that is uh disciplining the children as they grow up and one of the things especially one of the things that's missing when the father isn't there is that other discipline portion which is different than sometimes the way the mother disciplines and for me uh, like I said, I have four kids. My youngest is my only daughter. She's only eight, but I definitely discipline her a lot different than I do my three boys. Uh, you have the three girls right out of the show. No, no, I have here, two boys. So- I have two boys and a girl. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah. You have the trip. I mean, you have the triplets right out of the mm-hmm. shot here. So uh, what type of disciplinarian were you as a dad growing up? And was it different for you with, with your sons as it was with your daughter? Uh, I'm not sure it was different for me, but but let, let me just say that we uh, found ourselves yelling a lot when they were about three. And if you are yelling, there's a problem. And so we recognize that as something's wrong. We can't, we, we're out of control. We're yelling. So we went to a neurobehaviorist who said, read this book, do exactly what's in this book. And we did it and it changed our lives. And at that time, we sort of timeout sort of techniques at, at that time. And we just did it and did it and did it and did it. And that's it. You, you, the one thing I learned most vividly is if you are feeling that parenting is not about you, it should have nothing to do with you. You should not be emotionally reacting. It should not be about your emotions, right? Of course, there's emotion involved in parenting. Of course, of course. But if you're having an emotional reaction and that emotion comes into the parenting, there's that's not parenting. <laughs> that's not good parenting anymore. You, if you are having a anger or a, whatever it is, you're out of feel out of control, you feel overwhelmed, you missed parenting opportunities at least three steps before you felt like that. So the first time that they do something that you don't like and you're like, oh, just let it go, you're gonna pay up, it's gonna keep going, and it's gonna be you're gonna feel it's gonna be more later. So that's the main thing I learned was I was missing opportunities much earlier where I should have been disciplining right away. And uh, that helped a lot. Yeah, we're definitely still learning as we go here. One of those was the uh, the five love languages. I know a lot of people suggest that to do with couples. We've done it with our teenage boys, and uh, it was really eye opening to do that. It really helped change the way that we discipline them now as we're going through those teenage years with them. So always willing to learn and change here as we go well, through it. Especially when you're with teenagers, your your job is to be the um, executioner. <laughs> That's it. Your <laughs> job is to drop the axe, not to be angry, not to have feelings about it. You just got to do it. Just drop the ax. That's it. Uh, and, you know, it's it, you can deal with them different. It's like, hey, I didn't do the behavior. I told you what was going to happen. My job now is to make sure that happens. That's it. It's going to happen. Whatever that was I said is going to happen is now going to happen. So next time, think about that. Don't, don't do that maybe next time. And uh, it's not about me, parent. 
It's about you and the choices you made. My job is to make sure that you become a healthy adult. And because of that, I have to do certain things that are unpleasant. I don't like doing it, but here it is. Yeah, very well said. What would you consider to be the top values you hope to instill in your three kids growing up? Uh, you know, I've never, weirdly, never really thought about that. Um, you know, I assume, you know, value of family, value of hard work, value of saving, all, all the, all, everything is in the Bible. Everything grandma said, weirdly enough, starts to be really important. I, I, and I don't, I don't mean to be reactionary about it. I'm just saying that some of these basic things that, uh, you know, maybe your parents talked to my parents talked about in the sixties, but lo and behold, turned out to have, to have pertinence. So uh, importance of family, importance of saving, importance of hard work, uh, importance of, uh, uh, you know, giving back and other relations, rela importance of relationships, I guess, is something that that wasn't so much emphasized back in the day. I think it's uh, more front and center these days. And that's a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. Right on with that. How, how about as far as dating when that started to hit your kids, when they got old enough to start hitting that dating scene, what kind of advice had you walk them through that? Yeah. You know, I, I kind of. To, to me, I felt like my job was more like uh, <laughs> like a, a herdsman or something with a corral, you know, <laughs> with a bunch of horses in it. Like, hey, get, get. It's like just just moving the horses around and making, again, watching, make sure nothing bad happened. I, I really didn't. Uh, I don't remember sitting down and giving any real strong advice. I I, mm -mm. I kind of let that up to them. I thought by that point. You're smart. You're thinking. I'm watching. You know. You know. So let's see how it goes. See what you like. So yeah. And obviously, we just went through this whole uh, pandemic thing. I know you've uh, had your take on vaccines, and and uh, you get everybody seems to get some blowback if they don't ag uh, agree with the party line. Yeah. What what what's been your role? I mean, I I, I just had the fl uh, Florida Surgeon General here on the podcast. Oh great! Uh, I'm talking to, ask to him. I'm talking to him tomorrow. I love that guy. Uh, yeah, yeah uh, Dr. Latipo, great guy. Yeah. Uh, and, and really, all I asked him was about his advice on parents, if they should get their kids vaccinated. His basic answer was trust your intuition. Huh. And, and and I put that clip in TikTok, banned it. Um, I, I had uh, Dr. Robert Malone on the podcast. My video of him got taken down. So it's like anybody that has this kind of uh, um, opinion that goes outside yeah. the box, uh, they, they shut it down. What has that been like for you? Oh. And, and what is your advice to parents out there so uh, when it comes to this? So it's been atrocious, but it's been better lately. And, uh, you know, physicians talking to physicians tend to be a little bit safer territory. And I'm, you know, let me just tell you my position so everyone understands. First of all, COVID destroyed young lives. Well, not COVID so much as the, the fear that the our government used as a way of controlling people and then the lockdown. Reprehensible, unconscionable. We need a full examination of that policy and what it did and maybe think about never doing that again and having constraints on what public health can do. That's my fundamental position. The, the excesses of this thing harm people. Like I can't even figure out how harmful it, the, the, the way more than the pandemic, than the illness itself. And by the way, young lives primarily affected by these excesses. Uh, and God knows what it's going to do to the eight to 15 year olds that were not able to go to school. And the, the, like my kids that bounced back home because there was no work and everything was closed down and there were riots in their neighborhood. It was just, this was a mess that I, we haven't begun to reckon with because we all have PTSD from it. So there's that, uh, on the, um, on the vaccine front, uh, let me just say, and, and let me just say, I'm gonna put it all out there from a masking standpoint. If you'd like to protect yourself, wear an N95 mask. No one should argue with that to mandate a mask does not work and is insane. 
you do not protect anyone else with your N95. You protect yourself. So if you want to do that, go ahead. And we should respect that if people want to do that. No problem. Uh, on the vaccine side, again, I'm equally sort of moderate. Um, I've, I have a lot of geriatric patients in my practice, and they're all fully vaccinated and fully boosted, and I continue to boost them. The, the benefits after the age of 65, particularly actually after the age of 75, are clear. Uh, I know what I'm doing with the vaccine at that age group. I get it. The data's there. I use a lot of Paxlovid, though, after, uh, you know, under 65, not at all clear what we're doing with the Paxlovid. There's lots of recurrences and things with it, but it sure does work. Uh, and, uh, you know, on the early treatment and all that, all that, um, controversy, uh, I was always supportive of my peers being able to do what they thought was best in the best interest of a patient. But those early treatment things, those words that if I say you'll get kicked off YouTube now, uh, they don't work. They just don't work. Not, not the way Paxlovid works. So, so fine. They don't work. Uh, continuing on the vaccine there, I have grave concerns about, um, sort of 17 to 35 year old males getting the vaccine. There was an article that just came out yesterday. Uh, there, people are criticizing the group that published it, but the data was really the first good data on the relative risk of COVID itself versus the vaccine. That's the question. Is COVID worse than the vaccine? That's what's got to be answered. Same thing in the pediatric population. You must answer that question. And the interesting thing in pediatrics, though, you have to also compare it against other serious illnesses like measles. Like what, what risk do we generally tolerate in pediatric populations? I'm an adult physician, so I don't know how to answer that one, but I do do adolescent and young adults, and I've been gravely concerned about the myocarditis risk, and I've seen a lot of it, by the way, not from COVID, from the vaccine, so therefore that biases my opinion, um, and we'll, we're still going to argue that one out. We'll see. So you see how it's, it's complicated. It's a navigation. It's always that way in medicine, and the fact that anybody who's not clinical has an opinion is absurd. It's ridiculous that people are, you know, having a, learned how to pronounce the name of medication and the next day have an opinion about it. That, that's bizarre or a very complicated vaccine landscape. It's also bizarre, though, that physicians have camps, vaccine camps. That's never seen anything like that in my life. That's bizarre. And that's a problem with my profession that we need to kind of deal with. So it's complicated, right? It's complicated. And not having, obviously, any kind of medical, you know, knowledge or nothing like that, just from a civilian common sense point of view, what we witnessed was absolutely very mind boggling to see what people yeah. were doing, the way they changed yeah. behaviors during this. And to your yeah. point, my oldest son is a junior in high school now. He was in eighth grade. Uh, towards the end of his eighth grade year when this happened and he didn't have an eighth grade graduation, didn't have Terrible. an eighth grade dance. His freshman Terrible. year in high school was completely isolated. No lockers, no homerooms, no. Uh, they, they, it was like completely the way his experience has his development has been hurt by this. I, it's very obvious that you could see it. My hope, my sincerest hope is that those kids, as they enter adulthood, look back on this and are pissed. I, they should be furious. They've been robbed. And they should uh, uh, act accordingly as citizens and voters and adjust the system a little bit. It, it needs it needs constraints. The I'm not saying that there is never a circumstance where public health shouldn't have fiat authority. They shouldn't have fiat authority all the time whenever their whim suggests they need it. That's insane. Uh, and these people are, by the way, not clinically trained for the most part. And if they're clinic clinicians, they're pediatricians and not trained in adult medicine. And it's different. Just the way I was talking about the pediatric population being different, I'm not making judgments there. Pediatricians shouldn't be making a de decisions about adults. The reason a lot of the public health officials are pediatricians is most public health was vaccine therapy, you know, programs in children. So naturally, they they got those jobs. 
they are, you saw the incompetence and how ill-equipped they were for this particular pandemic. And it just seems like now we're just so many people have lost faith in the public health system just because there's been so many different people that have different. No one tells you the truth. And it seems like it should be easier to get it the truth now than ever. But it seems to be so much more complicated. Look, my thing, this little again, this setup here I'm sitting here in was uh, my wife's and I attempt to sort of we we felt like we were the French underground. We were broadcasting all the way through the pandemic, like helping people make sense of it. Calm down. Panic never makes things better. Let's get through this together. Let's try to make sense of it. Blah blah blah. And you know, I and I was very supportive of our government's excesses at the beginning because, like, look, it's an unclear situation. They're they're in a tough position. They don't want it to get hurt. They're making you know extreme decisions. But okay, I'll support it. And then after nine months and twelve months and eighteen months, I thought you got to be you got to be kidding. And I, I literally and and then the press and the forget it. I mean, the press really. I think they destroyed themselves during this. This was. You know, the New York Times editorial boards demanding lockdown, having an opinion about non-pharmacological medical interventions. You don't, you should have you have no business having an opinion. Anyway, that's that's my piece. Yeah, and and then bringing it back into you as a father here, have have any of your your kids followed in your footsteps and your line of work? Any of them shown any interest in either getting behind the microphone, behind the camera, or no, into no, the doctor no, field? No, they all don't like media. They all they all don't like that. Um, one, two have kind of flirted with biology periodically and they like it. And then they go away from that. And they saw, they've seen how I had to struggle to do good medicine. They, they saw how painful it is to practice medicine today. And, and it is, it just is. And if it's not your calling, if you're not something you have to do, you shouldn't do it. And it was, it was clearly my calling. It's something I, I could not imagine life without, uh, the fact that I don't do as much of it as I used to is sort of mind warping to me because it was so much a part of my identity that I, that I don't go, I don't do hospital care anymore. It's just, I can't, can't, I can't process that. I walked into a hospital every morning of my life for 35 years and now I don't do that anymore. It's like, I, I can't, <laughs> who am I? <laughs> sort of what I ask myself, but I am trying to use other modalities to, you know, I, I had such a broad, crazy experience that physicians aren't getting anymore, you know, both working in the psychiatric setting, addiction setting, critical care and general medical no one has that. No, no person experiences that anymore. And so I want to try to give back what those insights have given me. Yeah, very cool. And I know right now we're, we're in the holiday season here, Christmas, Hanukkah, the whole bit coming towards the end of the year. You mm-hmm. guys have any kind of uh, family traditions that you do around this time of the year that you keep going with? You know, we, we, they're very light, very, we, we try and you know, my dad was uh, family was very Jewish. And so it's sort of an homage to him. We sort of try to practice Hanukkah candles and things just to really just as a a nod to him and his family. No one is, we're Jewish, you know, my, my mom wasn't, my wife isn't. So it's sort of a vestige of that heritage. We, my wife likes to decorate the house and, but that's coming soon. We haven't gotten to that yet. Uh, We um, go to the Rose Parade every New Year's day, which is, you know, right up the street here from where we live. So that's when my daughter was asked this question, she said that was her ritual every year. So we're not we're not much about rituals, but we do kind of hang out. We all definitely all around during the holidays, for sure. Yeah, we're still we still got one uh, believer with the uh, we're still doing the elf on the shelf over here that was looking at your bobblehead there. It could make a little like uh, Dr. Drew on the shelf oh, kind of thing going on there. You are. You got good instincts. So you say that again to my wife and it'll show up and, uh, you know, and, uh, yeah, you get a little book, a little story to go behind it. There you go. No, yeah, the boy, this thing will show up in Sri Lanka or something. It'll picture <laughs> on, on Instagram. 
Well, obviously you've had so much success on your career path here. What's next for you? Any projects that you're working on? What do you got coming in the new year for you? Well, uh, strangely, I do have something. I was just going to say, I don't know. I just, I keep exploring and anything turns up, I try to explore it, but I do have something I did that's going to air on January 4th, which is on Fox. It's called special forces where I went to the Wadi Rum desert in Jordan with 15 other celebrities. And we trained as Navy SEALs. And uh, let's say if you, it should just be named a bunch of celebrities get their asses handed to them. And so we, it's really intense. And we all became great friends because again, that's why that trauma bonding is sort of on my, my mind. We all were really bound, bound by that trauma. And uh, it was an extraordinary experience and a good one. And uh, do watch, you will, uh, whew, you will uh, learn, you'll more than anything, you'll learn what Navy SEALs have to go through. It's extraordinary. Wow. Yeah. I love the Navy SEAL community. I'm friends with so many of them. I've had uh, over 65 SEALs on the podcast here. So I love their community. I love what they're all about. It, it, it's it's not, not everybody can do it. <laughs> yeah. There's no I'm doubt about say. that. Yeah, not everyone can do it. And God bless those that can. I am full, full, full respect. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right. So um, I look forward to that. Last thing I want to hit you with here. I'd love to ask uh, all the dads that I get on the podcast, what type of advice do you have for that new dad or for that about to be father who's out there listening? If you're just getting into it, just understand your life will change and changes everything. I, I don't want to say something that sounds pejorative or negative, like your knife will never be the same. It sounds ominous, but it changes everything. And the one thing you will never search for again is meaning in your life because you always can turn to that uh, and bringing another person successfully into adulthood it's hard to understand how people find meaning without that, frankly, uh, that I feel bad for people. I they make your choices, whatever I get it, but boy, you know, we're, our kids are 30 now and we're, you know, we're seniors, which we can't believe. Um, and you can really, it, it, you don't search around for meaning after you've got that behind you and you've done that and built that it, it's, it's, it's always there. And uh, it's sort of fundamental. Now, having said that, uh, get get help. <laughs> Don't be afraid to get help. Uh, and just uh, dig in, dig in, and uh, understand that, that there's another thing we you know we haven't talked about yet. <clears throat> there's something about babies, human babies, is that dads often, not always, but typically can't suffice for the baby. The baby wants mom. So when you step in and you want to give you know give your wife a spell, do 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 that. But understand the. The, what happens to the mom is different than what happens to you with the, the, the baby. I've always imagined it in my mind's eye as a hooks up a, a, a tube to the baby, to the mom, the baby hooks a tube up. It's no longer an umbilical cord, but it's this, it's this ineffable tube that sucks her soul right out of her 24 seven. And that's what the baby wants and support your wife accordingly. Yeah, very well said. I love the message. It's been an honor for me. I got to say, Dr. Drew, you're a first-class father all the way. And thank you so much for giving me a few minutes of your time here on First Class Fatherhood. Pleasure to be here. You have been listening to First Class Fatherhood. First Class Fatherhood is a family-made media podcast. Please visit www.firstclassfatherhood.com or www.familymade.com to find out more details. You can order First Class Fatherhood advice and wisdom from high-profile dads on Amazon.com or wherever books are sold. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Proverbs 22.6 tells us, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will never depart from it. God bless, and I'll catch you next time.